The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. I'm Melissa Lee, and this is Fast Money. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, Karen Farneman, and Bono and Ice. And tonight on Fast, the Reddit Rebellion strikes back. GameStop going wild again today, and the monster move is giving new meaning to the retail trade. We'll explain that. Plus... New fallout this hour to that massive hack attack. 30,000 U.S. companies possibly hit. The key cybersecurity stocks that could see the most impact. And later, taking flight, airline stocks soaring today. Why now could be your last best chance to book a ticket on this reopening trade. But we start off with another tech wreck. The Nasdaq falling 2.4% today, officially pulling the index into a correction. The Nasdaq is now down more than 10% from its February 12th closing high. Leading today's losses, Apple, that stock dropping another 4%. It is now down nearly 9% in just the past week. So when you look under the hood of this tech wreck, it's not just Peloton and Zoom, those high-flying, high-multiple names crashing back to earth. Apple, widely seen as a more defensive tech play, is bleeding billions in market cap. So is Apple shooting off major warning flares that an even bigger tech sell-off may be coming? Guy, we start with you. Hey, Mel, I don't know if it's major warning flares or bigger tech sell-off coming. Jim Cramer says this for years, and he's been correct. Apple's a stock you own, you don't trade. And he's right. But Jim would uh, point out, as Dan Nathan has as well, that over the last couple of years, you've seen peak to trough declines of pretty significant amounts. Summer of 2018, from August to December, traded down 38 percent. Obviously, like everything else, in uh, February, March of last year, traded down, I think, close to 28, 30 percent. And right now, from its all-time high, we're down 20 percent. So this is not like it's out of the realm of what Apple's done historically. 113, I think, is your 200-day moving average. And what's interesting is, you know, you hear people say all the time, I wish Apple would pull back so I get an opportunity to buy it. And then you have moves of this magnitude, and it terrifies people. I will tell you, and I've said this before, the reasons why stocks get to your buying levels are never the reasons you wanted to have happen. There's always something else, and it always feels terrifying. But if you have a plan in place and have been looking for this opportunity, I think that 113 level makes sense on a number of different metrics. So just a few bucks from where we are right now. Karen, what do you make of this? I mean, Apple has all the characteristics of a quote-unquote defensive stock you might want to hold on to. It's got a big cash balance. It pays a dividend. Um, Stimulus checks would theoretically be a benefit to Apple as well. But here it is. Yes. Well, the only thing it doesn't have, those things for sure that you mentioned are important. It is expensive, I guess, relative to the market. But I think it's less expensive relative to the market than it has been. And what happened today was sort of interesting. You had, you know, the the high flyer names, the morning started higher and then really sold off. And the fang names, which have actually been hanging in pretty well, actually that sell off really accelerated as led by Apple, 
And uh, so it's getting to a level where I think I would start to add. I think Guy's point is an excellent one. It never feels good when it gets to your level, right? So I always say buy when there's blood on the streets, even if it's your own. I'm long Apple, so this has not been fun. But I would absolutely be looking to add here, not to sell. Yeah. Bonowin, are you worried about tech in general because of what Apple's doing? Uh, Mel, I think you know my thoughts on the space, right? I, I agree that I, I do think a signal is being sent out, but I think it's a signal of irrash- irrationality. So when we were talking about some of the, the, the larger uh, multiple names, right, we could walk through methodically and logically as to why it made sense for there to be a bit more volatility there. When I start to see that type of volatility in Apple, we're not talking about a multi-hundred dollar PE. We're talking about something in the high 20s flirting with its 200-day moving average, and then I turn and I look at volatility and I see that I can take in four or five times, depending on where in the term structure, 10 times what I can take in for selling volatility in SPY, I'm with the others. And I think this is where you start to look for entry points. You don't catch falling knives, but you do use tools that we've all been up here and spoken about, about how to start to leverage into a position. I think that uh, 200 day moving average that Guy pointed out will be a point to watch. If you start to see some consolidation there, I think you sell some downside puts and get yourself long. If you don't get long through the puts, I think it gives you a bit more ammo to be able to buy it on the, uh, on the, on the reversal, on the trend up. Let's say Apple does hold that level guy and you're able to get in. Do you think that signals a broader sort of base for the tech trade? Guy? I thought I lost you for a second, Mel. No, I'm, I'm with you. Sorry, I lost you for a second. I apologize. No, I think Apple's its own animal. You know, I don't put Apple, I don't lump Apple in with the rest of the tech space. I think the rest of the tech space is interesting in and of itself. I think the, the fact that yields have gone, and we've talked about this I feel for months now, from 50 basis points in August to 1.6 today, I think that's what's really weighing on this tech sector. And, you know, although Jerome Powell a few months ago said valuation doesn't matter, well, it might not matter when interest rates in 10 years are below 1%, but it's certainly starting to matter now. That's my biggest concern. And I know the market was sort of, some of the fears were assuaged by some of the comments out of David Tepper today, and he might wind up being right, a lot smarter, a lot wealthier than I am. But with that said, I think the market is solely focused on 10-year yields and what it means to valuations in some of these high-flying tech names. Yeah. Uh, Tim? Well, I think you have a case where, as constructive as, as I would be along with these folks, let me at least take the other side. And, and let me point out that the 13.5% underperformance by the triple Qs or the NASDAQ 100 or that which you know, Apple is the dominant position it's down 13.5% in, in three weeks. And, and of all these moments of, of call them rotation, call them a blow off top at the end of August, especially for Apple uh, around that 128 level, talk about mid-October, this is the sharpest pullback we've had in years. And, and, and again, on a relative basis to the S&P. So what's it telling you? If you look at, uh, obviously, this was not an awful day for markets more broadly. And as you saw industrials and you saw banks and you saw from some things that are not only just a better valuation defense, but, but are parts of the economy that, that probably are going to see allocation and see growth. Um, I think you have to be careful. I mean, the move of 5.5% on the semiconductors is, again, an extraordinary move. Um, I do think Apple's overdone. I do think Apple is a case where you can feel very confident that the balance sheet is your friend, that not only that the, the re-rating that you've had over the last couple of years doesn't just disappear on you, that the services business is worth something. So um, I, I, I do think we are through a phase of the market where I think equities are going to continue to go higher. 
ultimately. But I do think that this, this tech trade, um, especially in mega cap tech, is, is different than it was in September. Bono, I'm curious, because I'm sure there are people out there who are listening to you guys thinking, oh, you know what, maybe it is time to start looking at Apple, and I'll look for that 113 level or 200-day moving average, and maybe I'll get in. But at the same time, they're thinking, well, maybe I should deploy that same amount of money into a traditional value stock, one that is seeing a bid. Tim had mentioned today's session, for instance, we saw regional banks do quite well. Where would you place that money, given a, a one- or two-year time frame? Uh, well, assuming that I that it's that it's money that I can stand to lose, and it's assuming mm-hmm. that it's money that I already have earmarked for investment. In the short term, I actually do like financials. I was on uh, a few days ago talking about XLF. I think KRE, KBE, as I mentioned, the, the multiples there and the rotation that we're seeing, that's an opportunity for you to buy banks that are in like 11, 12x price to earnings. I think that's where you're gonna, at least going to have a store of value and have the incremental 3 to 5%. Uh, increase in the short term. But I would not take Apple off of my watch list. Tim, same question to you. Look, I, I like how the industrials are running. I like GM making a run back to those highs just you know, under 57. Um, I, I think you have a case where uh, the, what, what I'm seeing in terms of the strength, we'll talk about airlines later in the show, but um, another part of that airlines trade is really the energy trade. Um, and, and I think you're continuing to see some of these resource trades, but, but just you know, some sense that we are going to be seeing real industrial strength and there are different you know, fuels to that, to, that, to that industry. So um, I like banks, so it's hard to argue with that. Uh, I continue to think that the, the sell-offs we've seen on banks on some of these interest rate days are also confusing for investors because they say, hey, shouldn't a steeper yield curve be good for banks? That's purely a risk-off day. And, and banks um, have rallied. They, look, they have been the sector to have owned for the last three months. And when you see pullbacks on these high-yield days, um, and I mean yields moving higher, that's really, to me, more of a risk-off dynamic that should be bought for banks. It's not some question here in the short run whether banks have, have lost their mojo. Karen, with a rare hand raise, I definitely want to go to you. (laughs) Okay, I just wanted to add one thing about some of the tech high flyers. Is Caught up in those are a lot of things that did superbly well during the pandemic, like the docu-signs of the world and the Zooms and, you know, so it's it's not just the the move in the yields, it's also the sentiment. This is like today, a gigantic reopen trade. So they're caught up in that sort of riptide as well. All right. Our next guest warns the rotation into economically sensitive stocks is hitting extreme levels. Let's bring in Tony Dwyer, chief market strategist at Canaccord Genuity. Tony, great to see you. Great to see you, Mel. I'm going to pose that same question to you, and I know you can't talk specific stocks, but let's say a mega cap tech stock like an Apple, which is seen as sort of a higher quality, more defensive name um, versus, you know, a more cyclical, uh, cyclically oriented name the next one to two years. Which would you rather? Cyclicals. But, but again, I think, I think that, Mel, that rotation, as you know, from last summer when it was really unpopular, where with what we call banks and tanks and the, the economic reopening trade because you had this extraordinary excess liquidity um, and such a friendly Fed that was going to fuel a synchronized global recovery. But that, to, to put it to you this way, um, the Russell 1000 growth versus the Russell 1000 value relative trade has given back all the gains since last March. How about that? So that's how extreme the move has been on an absolute basis. The Russell 1000 growth is back to where it was in August of last year. So all those gains, everybody's like, you got to get in, you got to rush in. They've given them all back. 
that I think creates at least a near term um, potential for a bounce in some of these mega cap tech names and these stay at home uh, growth names that have been hit so hard. Tony, this is Bono, and thanks so much for making yourself available this evening. A quick question sure. for you. On this rotation, can you see a situation where we have a rotation or a continued rotation out of growth into value and the market trades sideways? Do you, can you kind of help me understand or quantify to an extent what you think the market return result is from this rotation? It's a fantastic question, Bono, and, and because it's when you add up information technology as a S&P sector – and add in Facebook, Netflix, Google, and Amazon, which used to be in the infotech sector until 2018, it adds up to 20 or um, 38, about 38% of the market as of a couple of weeks ago when I measured it. Um, so what that means is if you, because you're taking a lot of, um, uh, you're taking a pretty big hit in those areas, it's subduing the S&P 500. And as Mike Santoli has been reporting all day, the equal weighted S&P was actually up today. So we've, we've been calling this a, um, a rotation sensation where you've just had to move out of those mega cap stocks. And now it's very popular to go into the cyclicals, which again, I think it's been extreme enough. Although I listen, I want to be there for years. This is one of those, we have a global recovery with backlog and supply chain issues that's going to carry growth forward for years. However, there's going to be periods of correction where some of these cyclicals, I think, Bono and take a hit relative to growth. And I think we're entering that point, especially because rates have probably seen a pretty, uh, pretty stable level up here. Thank you. That's what I was going to ask you, Tony. David Tepper made comments today about exactly that, thinking that, you know, maybe yields would stall around this 1.6 percent. But let's say, you know, they continue to move to the upside. I thought one and a half percent in the 10 year was sort of that line of demarcation. Where do you get concerned overall market wise uh, if rates get to? For it's a lot of people saying 2 percent. What's your sort of line in the sand? Boy, do I miss seeing you guys on set. Um, guy, I, I don't think it's a level. I think that's a big mistake we make. What's the level? You don't know the exact point. What you know is when it, when it number one, worsens financial conditions. So even though rates have gone up to 1.6%, the national financial condition subindices that measure 105 credit stress indicators out of the Chicago Fed have been improving easing financial conditions despite the rise in rates and inflation break-evens over the course of the last month have been basically flat, meaning market-based inflation expectations, even though you've had a 30 basis point rise in the 10 years. So what I'm trying to say simply is you don't look for a level of rates. You look for time when financial conditions stop easing. I think that's happened in the last week. And when inflation break even stop going up, and I think that's happened in the last month. So I think we're right around there. We're, we're in this choppy area where the tactical side is in no man's land, and yields are probably near their extreme, as, as Mr. Tepper said. Tony, great to see. I, I know you said you miss us. I think you missed the candy bag. Um, I totally <laughs> missed the candy bag. <laughs> we'll see you soon. The candy bag lives, by the way. It lives. Tony, awesome. good to see you. Awesome. Tony Dwyer, Canaccord Genuity. Tony speaks a lot of reason, uh, Karen, very rationally about how the market should interpret rates, and yet here we are. Market throws a tantrum whenever rates go above a certain level. Right. Uh, on a day-to-day, -day, it feels like a tantrum, right? But if you step back, I mean, it doesn't move exactly linearly. Uh, I, I think what he's saying makes great sense. It's an interesting point that even though rates are moving, 
that that inflation break-even has not moved. So I think we will see that inflation maybe be transitory. So all that having been said, I'm staying long, staying long banks. I agree with Tim. They will trade off if rates come back down, but that's okay. Coming up, the retail trade and the retail trader. Today's monster move in GameStop has the two worlds colliding. We will explain in later more on that massive hack attack on Microsoft, the three cybersecurity stocks that need to be on your radar in the wake of this breach. Those names ahead. And we're all over this after hours move in Stitch Fix. The stock is plunging on earnings. We'll break down the details when Fast Money returns. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently, and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert on Stitch Fix. Shares are plunging. They're down about 20% right now off the back of earnings. Let's get to Courtney Reagan with the reason. Courtney. Hi there, Melissa. So it was a mixed quarter for Stitch Fix. Uh, the loss was smaller than expected, but the, re- but the revenue was lighter. And we get more details in the shareholder letter. So the company talks about revenue and guidance. And just hang with me here for this explanation. So Stitch Fix says that they saw unprecedented total holiday shipping volume in the system overall, and that caused delays in sending the bundles to customers and then also getting the unwanted merchandise sent back. And because the company doesn't charge consumers until that unwanted merchandise is returned, there was a delay in revenue recognition left for the quarter, and so the quarter looked lighter than expected. If it wasn't for that, they say they would have met their expectations. But here's the tricky part. They expect these shipping delays to continue in the current quarter and the second half of the year, and thus are issuing a lighter-than-expected guidance, lighter than what Wall Street had expected. Now, Q2-adjusted EBIT was also light, and revenue per active client was lighter than expected, even though Stitch Fix had what it calls, quote, one of the strongest Januaries on record, active users up 12%, and more active clients, client additions in the quarter than the entire last year. Melissa? Something sort of doesn't add up to me, and maybe I'm slow, Courtney, on this, but let's say Tim gets a bundle and he sends two vests back. Um, It may not be recognized (laughs) this quarter, but it would still be recognized next quarter. I mean, shouldn't it just be shifted as opposed to an actual takedown in guidance? Exactly. And and I think we all thought the same thing when we were going through this shareholder letter. It's it's 18 pages, about 10 of it is text. And then you get into the tables. Something doesn't seem right, because it does seem that that delay in revenue from Q2 or the recognition would then be made up in Q3. So then why take down Q3 and also 
the full second half of the year. So analysts are on the conference call right now and should be asking that very question. Hopefully we get a little bit more clarity because I agree it doesn't really seem to add up that that could be the only reason. Courtney, it's Karen. Let me just ask you something. So they didn't have clarity, I guess, on this going into the quarter, but they have clarity on it continuing to be difficult for the rest of the year? Exactly, right? Um, I guess they're trying to anticipate what the volume will look like in the total shipping system for all of the carriers, and they think it will continue to be delayed going forward. I don't know. Is this, is this part of the port backup and the congestion they're seeing at the ports and they just didn't quite go into that and then the issue stems down through the rest of the supply chain? I would hope the analysts are going to ask this very question because I think those of us that read through this as the explanation for the revenue guidance going forward, it doesn't quite seem to make sense to me right now. Courtney, thanks. Courtney Reagan. Thanks. Uh, Guy, just quickly on this, uh, you know, 18, 19 page shareholder letter. And we don't have a lot of answers. We have a lot of questions. It's amazing how long a letter can be and not no. give, give you the answers that you really want. <laughs> and I'm sure they mentioned Tim a few times and his vest, which by the looks of things, he's never actually returned a vest. But, you know, this was a $54 stock in the beginning of January. It traded, it basically doubled in a month, and now it's round-tripped. And, you know, despite, yeah, average revenue per client, 467 I think the street was for $473. You still have you still have user growth. I think you have twelve percent user growth. Courtney mentioned. I'm going to say something. I can't even believe I'm about to say this, but you've basically got an opportunity to buy the stock exactly where it started the year around fifty four dollars, and I think it makes a lot of sense because I think a lot of people are going to get blown out tomorrow. You're going to see a huge volume day, one of those capitulation days on mm -hmm. the downside. And I'm not saying it's going back to one thirteen anytime soon, but for a trade, I think it sets up really well here. All right, let's move on. Here's a GameStop exploding to the upside today. The company tapping former Chewy CEO Ryan Cohen to lead its shift to e-commerce. He's also, by the way, a major shareholder now. Check out the XRT retail ETF. It jumped more than 6%. Why the big move? Well, as we've told you before, GameStop is still by far the biggest holding. The stock makes up nearly 9% of this XRT, more than the rest of the top five names combined. So, Tim, you flagged this earlier. What are you calling this now? The XRT, what are you calling this? Yeah, the, the, R, the R in XRT is Reddit, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, the, the two-day move on this off the lows on Friday is over 10%. And it's not because I bought 15,000 vests uh, in a minute, and, and even though I'm always <laughs> tempted to do that. I, I think you have a case here where, where and again, look at the retail sector. The, the great irony here is, of course, some great names in retail. We've talked about the move in Costco. Uh, Lululemon down almost 20 percent. Costco down 25 percent over kind of the last three months. Walmart down. Um, or, or, you know, even other ways to have exposure to the consumer. Uh, I think there's been some concern about the move higher in rates. So, um, look, this XRT and this Reddit phenomenon, uh, you know, a name like Macy's was up almost 10 percent today. I like Macy's for the fundamentals. Um, but there's no question this is a name that also has been part of that. And the fundamentals aren't, hey, you know, Macy's is, is as they were 15 years ago, but it's, hey, Macy's has now figured out how to also execute in, in terms of their digital business and their, uh, their ability to, to right size and renegotiate leases. And, and it's a relative better story that I actually think is legit. But a lot of this stuff in, in Reddit, we spent a lot of time. We're not, you know, I, I'm not looking to insult the, the quote unquote movement. But, but I believe in fundamentals, and the XRT is not based on fundamentals here. It's just not. Yeah. Uh, Bono, when you actually spotted a big trade in the XRT in the options pits, what'd you see? 
Yeah, different day, different story, same playbook. So uh, the trade that really jumped out to me is about, and the most active option today, 2000 of the XRT, 12th of March, this Friday, 90 calls uh, were traded for $1.25, putting your break even about 91.25. That's only 5% higher from spot, but keeping in mind the moves that Tim has mentioned, we see moves like this on earnings, and we're talking about a well-diversified ETF. Definitely right. worth noting. For more options action, be sure to catch the full show Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. All right, we've got a lot more ahead here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. A global cybersecurity crisis. The latest on the hack that put tens of thousands of U.S. companies at risk. And later, a magical day for Disney as the stock reaches a new all-time high. What's next for the stock in this whole new reopening world? We've got that and a lot more. When Fast Money returns. Every day, thousands of Comcast engineers and technologists put people at the heart of everything they create. Like Olu Shehi, a Comcast engineer who grew up bonding with his dad over sports. This inspired him and his team to create AI Highlights technology that uses AI and machine learning to detect the major plays in a sporting event. So millions of fans have a way of catching up on their favorite sports. Learn more at ComcastCorporation.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. We are learning more about a massive hack attack on Microsoft's widely used email software. Some 30,000 U.S. companies could have been hit in this attack. Eamon Javers has got the very latest. Eamon. Yeah, Melissa, the White House says it's leading a whole-of-government response here, taking this very seriously. Here's the statement from the National Security Council earlier uh, in response to this hack, which is allegedly coming from China. They say, this is an active threat still developing, and we urge network operators to take it very seriously. They say they're still figuring out exactly how uh, network operators can mitigate this threat. But I talked to the president of one of the cybersecurity companies earlier today, one of the cybersecurity companies that first spotted this exploit in the wild and actually alerted Microsoft to the fact that they had a problem with their Microsoft Exchange email server software. And I asked him why this thing was so hard to see. He explained that this one was tricky. Take a listen. You know, it was, was quite under the radar. You know, in the sense that it wouldn't trigger any security, you know, alarm bells. It wouldn't trigger antivirus software. You know, the actions that were being taken, you know, weren't too alarming, um, you know, in terms of raising any alerts. But when our team kind of dug in a bit, you know, we found, hey, these guys are actually exploiting a bug in Microsoft Exchange. So two big problems here. One is the fact that if you patch this software now, uh, you're not necessarily going to mitigate the damage because the attacker could already be inside your systems, right? So if the Chinese are in your system reading your email and you close the front door, the burglar is still in the building. That's not necessarily a solution. The other big problem here uh, is that other hacking entities around the world watched this unfolding last week and decided to pile on, take advantage of some of the same zero-day exploits that these Chinese hackers were allegedly using. And that means that a lot more entities out there, a lot more groups of bad guys, could be exploiting this same information, uh, stealing this email, uh, and doing you know just about anything with it. So you could see ransomware attacks. You could see all kinds of other developments as a result of this hack. And we still haven't seen all of that play out yet. So some real problems now uh, for IT departments and for people in the C-suite are trying to figure out what to do with all this. Eamon, it sounds like it's mostly small and medium-sized businesses, but what alarmed me was that electricity providers were also hit um, reportedly in this attack. Can you sort of walk through, I mean, for people 
who are sort of discounting this, thinking, oh, it's a small, medium-sized business, that they, if the Chinese get into the, the personal email of an ice cream parlor, like, that's not going to be a big deal. But the ramifications are actually much bigger right. than that. Yeah, I mean, what Microsoft said in its initial posting about this is that they were targeting infectious disease experts, law firms, uh, non-governmental organizations. So a range of things that could involve classified technology or could involve, uh, you know, sort of uh, defense industrial complex stuff generally, but also very specific medical and disease information uh, potentially around COVID-19 and other other things. So uh, just imagine the damage that could happen to you as a company if your law firm got hit by one of these, right? I mean, that's where all your secrets are, right? Yep. Uh, so the problem is pretty exponential, and we just don't know who else has now piled on and is also stealing emails as a result of this same exploit because a lot of bad guys around the world said, hey, you know what, that's a great idea. We can do that too, and they piled in through the week last week. All right. Eamon, thank you. Eamon Javers is keeping track of all of this for us. Our next guest is watching three cybersecurity stocks that could be worth a second look following this massive attack. Let's bring in Andrew Nowitzki of DA Davidson. Andrew, great to have you with us. Thank you for having me on again, Melissa. Is there anything, I mean, aside from this attack underscoring the need for cybersecurity, do you expect anything, whether it be a measure out of the government or, or something else that could compel companies to actually increase spending on cybersecurity? Sure. You know, I think there's also an underreported element um, in addition to what uh, your last speaker just uh, mentioned about the attack. You know, the goal of this attack was not just to read your emails. They were using this as sort of a stepping stone. There were many small companies, small businesses in here that were clearly attacked, but they are also suppliers um, and part of the supply chain for the Fortune 500. So now they have access to your email. They have access to a lot of the information which will make their phishing attacks on these Fortune 500 organizations much more effective. So I think this could be a, you know, a far bigger attack than just the 60,000 or so organizations that have supposedly been breached already. Yeah, you have three picks. Um, if we could just quickly walk through these, Tenable, Proofpoint, and Zscaler, and where they are in terms of, of the additional business you could see them gaining from an attack like this versus, and, and how they're valued right now. Sure. So Tenable, the first thing, you know, the first thing an organization needs to do is get these servers offline, analyze them, and determine if, they, if they've been patched and determine if they've been compromised. Now, Tenable is clearly a beneficiary of this. Their solution helps organizations answer those, those two questions. Uh, they can provide visibility into which servers need to be patched. They can also prevent the unpatched servers uh, from connecting back to your network. Uh, and so that they can also scan the service from malware to determine if they've been compromised. And interestingly, on the last earnings call, management said 40% of their new large enterprise customers were greenfield customers, meaning they're not running any sort of vulnerability solution prior to Tenable. Now, that should tell you, um, you know, how underpenetrated that market really is. You know, the second thing is I, I think there's a very interesting commonality between this breach and the SolarWinds attack. Mm -hmm. Both attacks compromised on-premise software and services. So CEOs and their boards, they have to start connecting the dots and insist that CISOs and their IT teams move more infrastructure to the cloud. You know, why take the risk of you know, hosting software that's constantly being compromised? Just let a cloud provider bear that burden. If that starts to accelerate, I think Zscaler, Zscaler uh, ticker ZS, is a clear beneficiary. They provide security for the cloud. Now, rather than you know, connecting a user to that on-premise application, the user can just connect to the Zscaler cloud. 
Zscaler will you know retrieve that content for the user. Um, they they basically don't let the hackers get into the castle mm-hmm. and do more damage. Do you foresee? And this is sort of a, a strange question, Andrew, but. You know, spending on cybersecurity, it's sort of, it's hard to prove that it worked. It's like, okay, so you didn't get breached. <laughs> so it's, sometimes it's a, it's a hard case to be made when you're, when you're making a budget for a company. Um, so is there anything that you think has changed because of SolarWinds and this most recent breach that will actually compel companies to increase their spending beyond what they're either doing right now or just, you know, putting some sort of strategy in place? Yeah, it's a fair question, Melissa. I mean, this is breach activity. People almost become numb to, to constantly getting breaches and reading about the breaches in the news. So first it was SolarWinds. Now it's the Microsoft Exchange server, which is used by almost every organization in the world. Um, you know, I think a lot of organizations are going to have to start you know, increasing spending uh, on, on various technologies that were exploited in these particular attacks. I don't think it's, a, it's carte blanche, just ramp up spending across the across the spectrum of all the different types of solutions out there. But certainly vulnerability management, uh, privilege access management is another big technology where I think a lot of CIOs will have to increase spending on. Those types of tools, like where a cyber arc plays, protect the keys to the kingdom. Mm-hmm. They once, once you get breached, it's not really the end of the world. It's the, what makes the breach really bad is when the hackers are able to get the data out of the organization. That's what needs to be prevented. And so I think focusing spending on technologies that not only stop the hackers from getting in the first place, but also detect and prevent hackers from getting data out of the organization is is a very high priority. All right. Andrew, great to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you. Andrew Nowinski of DA Davidson. Guy, where would you go in this space? It feels like we've been talking about this for so long. <laughs> and they were, if you go back into January, I mean, FireEye, Palo Alto, these stocks were doing unbelievable. Even Zscaler was up $230 stock. And I, I think over the last week and a half, it's down... 27 percent i think it closed around 160 but zscale just reported that three different analysts upgraded the stock i think btig can accord and another shop uh Berenberg, i believe all with 235 250 price targets on it i don't really understand why they've gotten hit as hard as they have maybe it's just a broader market thing uh but any of those names zscale or FireEye, palo alto i think they all make sense in this environment all right coming up Anxious to get back traveling again. We are too. And all that pent-up demand could have a big impact on the airline stocks. We'll bring you the trade. And later, the hottest new trend in music may have nothing to do with K-pop or The weekend. How the blockchain could shake up the industry and change the way artists get paid. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got new numbers on how Americans feel about reopening the economy. An exclusive CNBC morning consult poll commissioned over the last week finds that 54 percent of people think it's, quote, very safe or somewhat safe to reopen at this point in the pandemic. And that attitude could have a major impact on the travel stocks. Check out the airlines. They were up big in today's session. Buckle up because this trade could soon gain some serious altitude. Let's get to Phil Lebeau with the details. Phil. Melissa, have you booked your summer vacation plans yet? No. If you haven't, you might want to start thinking about it if you're going to take a trip because those seats are going to fill up quickly. Here's what the airlines are seeing right now and one reason why the stocks moved higher. Close-in bookings, they're picking up. We're talking about people booking for two to four weeks in, uh, to make that trip. And then you've got the summer surge. That was expected by the airlines. They are seeing this. And that's why you have optimism on Wall Street that some of these carriers could get back to break even. 
So if you are planning on making that trip, Hopper, which tracks airfares and projects on where they're going to go, these are the numbers from Hopper. March, round-trip domestic airfare was $225. It's supposed to go up to $261 if you're looking to fly in June. And by the way, the longer you wait, the more it's going to cost you. Prices are expected to go up 6% per month, according to Hopper. Three airlines hit 52-week highs. We're talking about Alaska, JetBlue, and Southwest. And again, this is all about the optimism that is out there. Two other airline notes. First of all, take a look at shares of American Airlines. It was up with all of the other airline stocks. But today it announced that it's going to be doing a $5 billion debt offering, also taking out a term loan for another $2.5 billion. That's $7.5 billion. That's going to go to pay back the Treasury loan that it uh, took out, the most recent Treasury loan that it took out. And finally, Frontier Airlines. If you are somebody who lives out west, maybe in the Denver area, you know those planes. They have drawings or the liveries that show uh, animals on the tail. It is planning on going public through an IPO. They walked down the aisle in 2017, Melissa. Now they're deciding, let's try it again. Let's see if they actually make it to an actual listing. Frontier filing for an IPO. Melissa, back to you. Real sign of the times. Phil, thank you. Phil LeBeau. Tim, that seems like a, a real positive sign for this sector if wow. one is going to venture to go public after a pandemic before it's even over. Extraordinary. So not a software company, not a tech stock, but an airline uh, seeing this as an opportune time in the pipeline. Well, he, here are the reasons why it's a good time. Uh, not only are we going to have, uh, I, I think it's going to be travel getting this summer and into the fall. So I think it's going to be much more than people expect. Um, I also think you've seen airlines put limited capacity back to work again relative to where demand is picking up and everything that the the analysts are seeing out of tsa and and some of the demand levels that phil talked about is uh, there things are a lot better and without increasing supply they will have the pricing power so uh, what i i would just say is that valuations aren't terribly interesting right now and, and we talk about this a lot on the show that the enterprise value of a lot of these companies has gone up uh, and and therefore the valuations are a little misleading relative to their former earnings power so um, be careful. Look, I, I, I like Delta Airlines and I like it uh, because I think it will probably overshoot to the upside. But be careful. There's no value here at this point. Uh, but airlines in terms of the, you know, the reopening trade is still a place where I think you can be. All right. Coming up, a magical day for Disney. The stock hitting fresh all-time highs. We'll tell you what has got investors so bullish on this name. Plus, tunes and tokens, how the rise of one hot new crypto asset could be a game changer for the music industry. All that and much more when Fast Money returns. Welcome back. Disney shares topping the tape. We're seeing strong follow through to the news we first brought you Friday night. The California will allow Disneyland to reopen on April 1st with limited capacity. The company's holding a shareholder meeting tomorrow. So what's the trade here? Bono and we were just talking about the reopening trade coming back with a vengeance when it comes to airlines. How about Disney? Yeah, and I think this is testament to that. Listen, I'm, I'm hesitant to fight the trend, the reopening trend. But what I will say, the argument for Disney was that it was going to receive some re-rating. When I look at its Ford multiple versus Netflix, I think that that is priced in. So I'm, I'm kind of agnostic here, more of a hold. Yeah. Karen, what do you think? Uh, well, I, I guess I agree with Bonwin. I'm not a buyer here. Kudos to Tim, who's been on it all the way. I mean, it, the, obviously, the streaming numbers have been great. I don't know if it traded up together with Viacom today. You saw that was up gigantic. I don't know if it was just the Oprah interview, but we're just streaming in general. And then add on the reopen trade, sort of a nice, I don't know, Goldilocks for Disney, but I don't own it here. All right. Coming up, a music industry makeover, how crypto is cashing in on show business. 
You've got much more Fast Money after this. No Kramer camp tonight. Jim is off, but stick around for On the Edge. We are breaking down the day's biggest stories, all coming up at the top of the hour. Well, there's a new craze breaking out in the crypto world, and it's all about crypto collectibles. Non-fungible tokens, or NFTs, are exploding in popularity. They're being used by things like art, baseball cards, and even Jack Dorsey's first tweet. According to Google Trends, online searches for NFTs are up more than 90% in the past three months. On Friday, rock band Kings of Leon joined forces with NFT mining and wallet company Yellowheart to release the first ever NFT music album. Fans can use tokens to bid on a limited number of vinyl and digital versions of the album. Joining us now is Josh Katz, CEO of Yellowheart. Josh, great to have you with us. Hey, thanks for having me. First of all, what has demand been like? And are you getting a sense that these are people who are brand new to NFTs? Um, yeah, there's been a lot of adoption to people that are new to NFTs on this particular release. Um, a lot of new NFT first-time buyers. How does how does an NFT releasing an album on an NFT change the game? I mean, we understand that you know artists can be paid directly, but in not, what other ways does this sort of change the way things normally go? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, for the last, you know, call it 20 years, music was released um, onto a streaming, you know, service. And all of a sudden, music was just not available one day and then available the next day and people could listen and that was it. It was audio. The value around the art has been lost. And what NFT does is it brings it back. It allows the artist creativity. It allows them to put together packages that are meaningful to their fans. It allows them to create provable scarcity. Um, around these collectible goods. And frankly, it's just a much better delivery system for value around an asset and around music too. Hey, Josh, it's Tim. Thanks for joining us and congrats to you and the Kings uh, on dropping this. Um, Look, not since Mike Damone made scalper a dirty word, has anyone really gone to take on the scalping industry? And I know you started at at least as a ticket agency, although again, the concept of the NFT seems to be really the, the entire uh, 360 package artists can can represent. T- tell us really the groundbreaking element of this in terms of that almost anyone can create an NFT now, and and, yeah. and how you you're essentially not only disrupting but you're empowering artists. Yeah, thanks, Tim. So that is the goal of Yellowheart. Yellowheart was born as a programmable contract system or NFT as they call it now to eliminate scalping in the live music industry. Live music got shut down with COVID temporarily. And we moved to using our NFTs to release assets or collectibles. So um, they're tremendous stores of value, and it's going to really add a much better fan experience in buying these these assets. Hey, it's Karen. I wonder if you could explain something to me. I hear the analogy of you can you can buy a Monet painting or you could buy a poster of it, but when you buy the actual painting, let's say or the, the analogy here with Kings of Leon, who then owns the poster part of it? So this is a situation where there's provable scarcity on the blockchain around these assets. These assets go out, they're, they're visible through a ledger on Ethereum. You could see a chain of provenance of ownership. You could see that they're authentic. So the original goods are owned by that current owner. Um, in a case where you might have an original work, Um, that existed pre-NFT, you might have an original piece of art, physical, and then some type of digital creation. Right now, the movement has been really towards full-on digital creations, 
with Kings of Leon, we did the first physical digital pairing where we offered up a physical vinyl um, as redemption key within the Yellow Heart system on the NFT. But that, I believe, is the first of its kind. Josh, it's great to speak with you. We hope you'll come back on the show and, and keep us Thank posted on, on the adoption of this NFTs. Thanks so much. Josh Katz of Yellow Heart. Um, Karen, I'll go to you on this business. You own Live Nation, so there are real implications in terms of how things are sold, particularly by artists. Yes. I mean, that, that when you talked about the ticket, uh, that did make me think, huh, I wonder if this is weighing on Live Nation at all. I think... Um, I don't know. I don't know how it's going to evolve, but right now Live Nation is so much of a, it is the, the poster child for reopen, you know, bunch of people in a small area sweating and screaming for a long time is a really very, very reopen trade, but I actually had to trim some. It was just too expensive. Yeah. I was talking to a, a VC uh, person who invests in NFTs guy, and, and the extrapolation is that there could be assets, physical assets, like let's say a Birkin bag, which I know you can relate to, Guy, which could then be <laughs> sliced up into ownership slices and sold by NFT. And so you can actually prove that you own part of that Birkin bag and that there is a provenance established of that Birkin bag. Yeah, what a, ro- what a romantic gift around Valentine's Day. Here's I didn't have enough money bag. for the Birkin bag, but I got you. I mean... Listen, it's fascinating. It's way out of my pay grade. I think we should NFT some of the original fast money work. I mean, why not? Everybody else is getting into it. Why not? I think it'd be genius. I mean, I'll start one up right now if you want on on the interweb. Because there would be no bidders. (laughs) Uh, Up next, we got your final trades. How about that? Final trade time, Tim. Mel, I know you love that Damone Fast Times reference. Anyway, um, so GM, look, you've got cyclicality, you've got you've got valuation, you've got EV. There you go, GM. Bono in. I'd caution against fighting uh, the trend of momentum names. Tesla would hold true on the way up, hold true on the way down. Wait. Karen. Yeah, Apple, I think the sell-off's overdone. I'm not going to pick the bottom for sure, but I'm ready to buy. Guy. Z-Scaler, sister. All right. Thanks for watching Fast Money. We'll see you back here tomorrow. On the Edge debuts right now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow today. Pursue your tomorrow with P. Jim, a leading global asset manager.